0: Hey everybody, my name is Drew Baker. Welcome to the Brutal Podcast. This is the show where I interview progressive winemakers, chefs, farmers, and other amazing people at my kitchen table. On today's episode, I interview Marty Winters, winemaker and co-owner of Maitre D'Chay in California. Uh, Maitre D'Chay translates to cellar master, and it's a project that launched in 2012 uh, to produce low-intervention wines uh, that are expressive from single sites throughout California. Uh, I think that's it. Did I, did I get that right, Marty?
1: Oh, totally. You nailed it.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, I love, thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, man. So, um, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited to have you, uh, on the show and, uh, Thanks. just kind of have an opportunity to catch up, talk about life, uh, interests, what's, what's important to us, wine for sure, but also, um, kind of venture out into, uh, you know, bigger, bigger life spheres of conversation as well.
1: Uh, so yeah, man, how, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I mean, I mean, as, as good as I can be, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Where, where, where are
0: you right now?
1: So right now I'm at my house in El Cerrito, California. Um, you know, we're, we're talking today and it's what, the 18th of June? So to give you some perspective, me and my fiance, we lived in Napa for the last five years. And the first week of March, we moved to El Cerrito. So like a week and a half before the lockdown started in the Bay Area, we moved all of our stuff. I finished bottling for the 2018s for Maitre de Chez, And yeah, it was it was an interesting little bit, but yeah. So the long story is we're, we're here in El Cerrito, California. We're actually here because we're, um, moving closer to our winery space in Berkeley.
0: Okay, cool. So what is that proximity? Like, I'm not really familiar with that
1: geography. So if you think about San Francisco, the city on the Bay, um, right across from San Francisco is Oakland and, um, just North of Oakland, California is Berkeley, probably about like a five or 10 minute drive on the I-80. And then another like five or 10 minutes North after that is, um, Albany than El Cerrito, so we're just kind of like two towns north of Oakland. Right on. Yeah, cool. it's like if you're on the Beltway, <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to get from like southeast to northwest, it's about that distance. I got
0: you. I got you. Yeah. So, so you have some. Uh, uh, that was a Baltimore Beltway reference. Totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, let, let let's talk about that. Let's let's rewind the tape a little bit, right? So you're in El Cerrito. You were in Napa for five years before that. You're engaged. Right. You're making wine. You have your own project. Um, but like, tell us like how you, like, take us back to the beginning.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm one of two people in maitre de Chez, my business partner, Alex Pitts, he grew up in um, Arizona, you know, uh, just outside of Phoenix. And we were both, you know, kids that kind of grew up with just those, you know, classic Track home families lived in the suburbs. Um, you know, mostly really simple, middle class, lower middle class for, for me. But um, I grew up in Howard County. My mom was a you know an administrator as well as a teacher in the Howard County school system. Um, so Howard County, Maryland, obviously. But uh, my dad was a civilian employee for the Navy. Uh, worked in D.C. Um, and then eventually in Virginia. But yeah, I mean that's kind of my story. I grew up in Maryland, man. It's you know suburban Maryland, in between Baltimore and DC. We're about 20 minutes from each, and so that's kind of like where I was born and raised. But it's a it's an interesting story to where I got to today, which is somehow elsewhere of California.
0: Yeah. So how did like I mean, uh, obviously I have so many questions about that. Which like the first one is um, I first became aware of you about a year ago through a uh, connection with Matthew Plimpton, I believe. Yeah, totally. Uh, at Rebel Wine Company. And I'm wondering, like, Matthew connected the dots that you're originally from Maryland and that we should know each other. I'm right. wondering how, like, as our existences have paralleled for so long that we made it all the way until, like, 2019.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess my journey to the wine industry is is a little, a little bit different, you know? Like, I... I grew up in Maryland and you know, I I love Maryland. I love the East coast and I love being there when I was a kid, but you know, after 18 years, certain people get to that point where they're like, okay, I just want to get out of here and try something new. And like growing up on the East coast, you're, you know, you're an hour, hour and a half away um, from the ocean. You know, you have so many options to go do so many things to go see whether it's the mountains or Appalachias or whatever. I really longed for the West coast. Like I wanted to see the Rockies and I wanted to see the Pacific coast. And ever since I was a kid, I, you know, I was into skating. I wanted to learn how to surf. So long story short, my journey kind of took me to the West coast, but a really big part of that was my, my grandmother and my mother, both of which have an incredible green thumb. And when I was raised, like, of course, when you're raised, you don't think about these things, but they were both in the gardening and it was a really simple kind of experience for me to understand that, you know, my grandma had a garden. She cooked all the time. My mother, you know, albeit she wasn't like a three Michelin star chef. She definitely cooked like every meal at home. And we understood that like that was the family time was sitting down at the dinner table. always wine on the table, always fresh food. And that kind of really stayed with me. So like, kind of coming back to like getting back out West when it came to college, I was like, all right, I'm going out West. That's for sure. So I ended up going to the university of Utah. And then from there, I didn't realize it. Like most college students when they get to college is that no one knows how to cook. No one knows how to do anything. And so I was kind of the guy who was like cooking meals for friends, introducing people to wine and and kind of snowballing my passion for food and, and wine as it were. So that's kind of, like, how things started and really started putting me on a trajectory towards wine.
0: That's amazing. So you were, like, the dorm chef, the dorm song. Like, <laughs> yeah. Dude. <laughs> yeah, dude.
1: We, you know, like, people were buying, like...
0: Like, your, yeah, your roommates are drinking, like, 30 packs of, like, Bush Light and oh like, three-day-old yes. pizza. And you're like, listen, <laughs> I need to show you the way.
1: Yeah. It, like, truly, it was. It was very interesting, you know, like... the the, no one has shame in college (laughs) because you're just trying to have a good time and for me I was like a little bit more worried about you know like are we you know doing something that's going to benefit people and so for me like what benefited me at the time was hospitality I really wanted to like be with my friends get to know them a little bit better and I couldn't think of a better way to do that than to make a meal and have some food and, and get to know people
0: that's pretty amazing uh so you spent four years in utah
1: Mm -hmm. well a
0: little bit longer actually
1: i was a super senior i did a double major um but i didn't want to assume that on yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i'm too far off from you i did business um and international studies bs and a ba and the reason was because they didn't have an international business program yet i was like kind of thinking all right maybe i'll go back to the east coast i'll do like the state department route or I'll, you know, travel a little bit or work for an NGO and like the international sector. But um, as time told through college, I just got into understanding business as a as kind of like second nature. My, my All of my uncles had their own independent businesses and they just, you know, had it. And I, like my mom likes to say it's in our blood. So I don't know if that's true or not, but <laughs> uh, I just got into it. And so, you know, spending that time in Utah was really interesting because it kind of curtailed up to 2008. I I graduated college in 2008 and um, yeah, man, wanted to take some time because I I was kind of grappling with myself of whether I wanted to be a cook uh, and work in restaurants and, and eventually own a restaurant or should I just kind of like stay the path of college and getting into a corporate job that has the right benefits and the whole nine to five type thing. So the greatest thing that, you know, not the greatest thing that happened, but choice was the economy went through the floor. And, you know, we, you know, in business school, you like, you start seeing the signs as you're learning and and realizing things and you try and think that you're smarter than the whole thing. And that just is not the case. (laughs) You have so much to learn every single day. So my thought was like, I have so much to learn. And if there's ever a better time to get into restaurants, like now's the time. So I decided that I was going to learn how to cook on a professional level and then kind of gear towards being like a chef owner of a restaurant. And obviously that's changed a little bit, but (laughs) it's still kind of like a mantra that I have, like try and understand all facets of the business so you can best run it.
0: Cool. Yeah. I, I like that. So did you stay in Utah?
1: Well, I did for about a year or so. Um, I got recruited. My senior thesis for business school was, um, helping with a newly opened business um, and getting it off the ground. It was a brand new bistro restaurant and it was great because like in the daytime I could, I, I've always had two jobs since I can remember since I was like 16 and in the daytime I worked in the front of house, I helped him, you know, with general management, all that kind of stuff. And then in the nighttime I literally worked the line. So I was like working 18 hour days and I realized that where I was, wasn't where I wanted to be. And so I tried to like seek out more opportunities. And in Utah, they had opened a Waldorf Astoria hotel, like a collection hotel in Park City. And the chef who was running it was from San Francisco and his name is Mark Sullivan. And so he hooked me up with a job and I met one of my mentors actually is a chef who's a dear friend of mine, Stephen Boumier. And um, that was kind of my trajectory into food and cooking and then eventually California. Cool. Um,
0: so, yeah. where did other than sort of like growing up with wine at the kitchen table and and sort of viewing it as um, you know just really part of a meal and 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 the fact that it sounds like wine for you kind of conjures up this nostalgia of your childhood, yeah. which is like really cool. At what point did you realize that? your interest in it went beyond just um, uh, you know, seeing it as a piece of a, of, of a great meal. I mean, or maybe that's still what it is. I don't know.
1: (laughs) It is like, I think there's, there's no food without wine. When you're sitting down and having a a family meal, like, you know, when I was a kid, like there was sometimes like Coke on the table, there was Coca-Cola on the table. There was like, you know, all this other stuff. But now like, I don't, I can't remember the last time I had a soft drink, you know what I mean, like outside of like surfing and having a Mexican Coke. But I I just look at it almost as like a grocery because it's always there, it should be always there. Now, with that said, I think the real kind of moment for me was pairing food with wine, like going to a restaurant where the idea was you're gonna have this meal and there's someone who kind of thought about this whole situation that you're going through and tried to best take their knowledge and implement it into what they were gonna serve you. So this is what's fresh coming from the ground in the sense of seasonality. And then there's this you know, person in this restaurant, which at the time I didn't know what it was called, but I can't imagine not knowing a simile today, but at that point I had no idea what they were. And so, yeah, there's this person who kind of has this job to do this. And I was like, that's an incredible job. And that's kind of what put me on the trajectory to start trying to gear towards that in a restaurant, which is kind of cool. Like I I think that job is, is kind of, for most people, they think it's pretty much just the general manager, the guy who buys the wine, but realizing that that wasn't the case, there was many different tiers to it. There was actually like people who had that job and then they had assistants to help them make sure that their programs were running the way they wanted it to, because that's how it kind of worked out. That was something that really kind of pushed me towards getting into restaurants, I think, knowing that that job exists. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So you went to
0: school for business. Yeah. You got into, uh, you wanted to work in a kitchen. Eventually you, you thought maybe you'd own your own restaurant and then you started like really connecting the dots between food and wine. So take us from there to like, how, how did you get to the point where where you actually started making wine?
1: Yeah, I mean, so by the time I left Utah, I went to work at a restaurant in Sonoma. And my idea was like, okay, I'm going to go to Sonoma, California. This is like the cult of American wine. Um, I did Napa because I knew that it was just a little bit, it wasn't my scene. It wasn't like you, you know, you. It just wasn't my scene in that sense at that point in time. Like I was very much a college student. I was living on like nothing. I was getting paid like $15 an hour. And I wanted to kind of see a little bit of a smaller town, a little bit more of a community experience for, for wine and food and restaurants, because that's eventually what I wanted to do. And so and I realized that wine is such an integral part of the society that are, like, if you don't grow wine, you're growing either walnuts or, 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 you know, something else, but everyone's a farmer for the most part. Um, it's such a small and this close knit community. It was like what I wanted to understand. And then at the time I was one of the two Michelin star restaurants. So it was a very serious restaurant to be working at in the country and kind of like an, on, on like the cutting edge of, what was going on in the culinary world so i thought i had it made you know like i'll learn about wine during the day like two job mentality and then at night i'll, I'll cook you know and so what happened was of course you know 18 hour days after a certain amount of time just burn you out and so my out was i had a friend who i was in a tasting group with and he put me in like kind of under his wing uh, because he was he was a winemaker um and also a chef and also an international like he was from Denmark so really interesting cool guy and that's like a different story but he was like come work for me for Harvest and so I was his apprentice at a small winery and I loved it it was like that was the moment like the first day of work like he said show up at 6 a.m I got there at 6.05 and he was just like threw down the hammer he's like that's not how it works there's 20 you know, fruit bins full of Chardonnay that were picked because someone worked eight hours through the night to pick it and you're late. That's not how it works. And I like that just like threw me back in the kitchen mentality, but in a very different way. And so he kind of like strummed all the chords that interest me. And after that, it was just done. You know, I was like, wow, I'm making wine now for yeah, sure. Amazing. What year was that? So that was 2010. Okay. Um, yeah. So It was an interesting experience and he was, he was like classically trained as a sommelier, like his vocational school in Denmark was being a SOM and a, and a hospitality professional. His, his dad actually like was one of the teachers at school, but he put me on that trajectory to say, Hey, like, there's an opportunity to do this. You can work harvest, but in between is the hard part. So learn how to be a sommelier so you can work in between. And I wish I took his, like his idea a little bit more, to heart because I ended up really focusing hard on being a sommelier for a long time and kind of put the winemaking on the side and I wish it was the opposite. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah,
0: you're, you you have youth on your side and and lots of time (laughs) to, uh, (laughs) to correct
1: that. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Totally. (laughs) So yeah, that put me on that trajectory and that's kind of what got me into wine. And then, you know, I, I went to Southern California for a little bit to work at a really you know, great restaurant there that had a huge wine list. And I got this opportunity to try a lot of really different, unique and interesting wines from all over the world. But ultimately, it led me back to Northern California and to Napa Valley, um, and then eventually to, to Maitre d'Ache.
0: Cool. Um, so how did
1: you meet Alex? What's that, tell us about that relationship. We we met at Cyrus in Healdsburg. We were both cooks working for Doug Keen at that restaurant in Healdsburg. And one day, you know, in that industry, the only way you got a job was you worked for free. And so you'd show up and you'd do a stage. And then, you know, maybe they'd say, hey, stick around for a couple of weeks. We'll see if this works out. And then after that, you finally got like a job offer. But Alex was really talented chef, self-trained. Both of us never went to culinary school. And so we both kind of like, jived really quickly and he showed up and of course was flying by the seat of his pants like had nowhere to stay so he eventually like stayed in my apartment with my roommate at the time he had crashed on our couch for like the first three weeks until I could get a place to stay and so yeah that's how we met ever since then we've either been roommates or been business partners um, ever since we just kind of both share this camaraderie and, and this kind of um, mentality of uh, that's just been working for some reason I can't really put my finger on it. My fiance actually asked me this all the time because you know we're the type of people where we don't let something bother us for more than like a few minutes and then we get past it and it's not like that for many relationships that I've been in, so it's kind of like okay, we should probably stick together <laughs>
0: yeah. That's yeah yeah so um cool so, uh, I guess um a Hope that I have for this show is that uh, someone uh, listens to the this interview and is interested, maybe kicking the tires on this whole wine thing, and uh, almost kind of like picture yourself or listening to your story. I can picture myself uh, in and or, or around that 2009 2010 time, and right. um, you know is looking for you know meaningful vocation. Uh, employment, looking for that intersection of agriculture and making a product that brings people pleasure and is drawn into wine. What, what sort of like before we kind of like go in deep into like where you know Maitre Dechet is now? Um, mm-hmm. What would you tell that person who is who's kicking the tires on this whole thing um, that 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 you wish you had known
1: then? So I, I guess, like, kind of one of the biggest things that I I wanted to know, if I were like today looking back, is that like, there's an opportunity to do this, like, a lot of people don't realize these opportunities, because they don't know that they exist. And so it's it's become a big part of what I've been thinking about, you know, given the times right now, it's like, okay, like, put yourself in that situation. How would you want to give someone an opportunity in a place that readily wouldn't have known it was there? And so, you know, we think about organizations we're interacting with. We, we think about people that we know in our current network and what the work that we need to do to expand it in the right directions. So I guess like knowing that you can go do a harvest and that wineries readily accept people to do that. Like, that's one thing I just, I had no idea if I knew that I could do that when I was like 16 in Maryland, that I could like take a, you know, the summer and go help in the vineyard. Like that would be incredible. I had no idea you could do that. And so just making the space to let people know that that is capable is something that I'm really passionate about right now. And I think is something that I have the means and the opportunity to do. And then on that note as well, it's, it's trying not so much to like, dumb down winemaking or dumb down the experience so that people can understand, but enlightening people to it in a way that's a little bit more succinct and understanding. Knowing yeah, that like demystify so much right. yeah. It's not like it's a crazy situation where wine, you know, is a grape in the vineyard and it's beautiful, goes into this magic box of a winery and then comes out a bottle. It's like you kind of have to do those steps in between and demystify that in a way, like you said, but it's really simple to do that. It's not that tough, you know, right. When you think about it specifically in the style that we make wine, it's really simple. It's like when it, when you want to start controlling everything, that's when it changes. And so kind of the control irony that that's where the complications come from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm with you. Like I, you, you and I both know, like, especially like it's, when you start trying to manipulate something too much, that's when it starts kicking back at you. I think we're seeing a lot of that today, whether you want to talk about it in our industry or anywhere else. And so, you know, letting kind of the natural flow of things happen is is one way to look at it. And I really like that approach.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So, I mean, I I feel like you kind of like touched on something there that, that seemed important to me that, I, that, that to, to kind of like, you know, dig in a little bit deeper, um, which is this idea of, of sort of offering awareness to someone uh, or people generally who are interested in getting into wine. And, and I think there is this misconception that the wine business is full of blue bloods and that, you know, it's a bunch of old money and, you know, in every stereotype, there is enough truth, uh, you know, to to bring validity to it. Because I mean, you're out in California; you see it much more than I do. You know, to be a landowner in California is like a whole different stratosphere of of, of you know of of wealth and of opportunity that like just doesn't come out of out of nowhere. However, I think that in 2020, in the U.S. wine scene, particularly, um, there is, as you said, opportunity. Uh, for for anyone to really get involved, and in order to capitalize on that opportunity, I think that we just need to raise awareness of these opportunities. And, and I think, like you said, a really great one is is an internship. And in 2011, I worked in uh, Hawkes Bay, New Zealand, and uh, right. I took an internship there where um, you know they paid uh, peanuts, but they gave me a place to stay and made just enough money to um, uh, to be able to go and to get back essentially. but it was uh, it was three months and it was the best three months of one it was three great months of my life. Right. and um, a, a tremendous learning opportunity and I've got to think that if somebody is interested is serious about getting into this industry, what a great way to kick things off is to go to a, a place that you've never been and to work a harvest and you get on winejobs.com, you know right. and midsummer, there are there are conceivably hundreds of opportunities to go work and if you are passionate and even are not necessarily trying to cash in and make all the money up front but see this as an investment in yourself long term what an opportunity to you know build a resume and give yourself you know the building blocks to take to take step 2
1: right and I think you're totally right. And, you know, like you are saying, you and I traditionally in sense, like when we think about harvest, whether it's in the Southern hemisphere or Northern hemisphere, those are all natural things for us. But like you're what, like 30 minutes from Baltimore downtown. Yeah. Yeah. 40. You no, know, like you're, you're truly like close enough where someone in that metropolitan area could, could experience, you know, the Chardonnay vineyard in your backyard. And for me, I'm truly like 10 minutes from downtown Oakland. And so putting ourselves out there is the biggest thing that we need to do and, and working with community-based organizations to try and build that conduit means that, you know maybe that first step isn't Hawke's Bay, New Zealand, but it's that place that's around the corner, whether it's in Baltimore or in Houston or you know, Southern California or wherever, it's just giving that opportunity to build that conduit. So someone could go and then that decision that they go and do it maybe hits like 10 or 15 other people with their experience or within their own network. And then, you know, how close we're connected when it comes to social media or just in general and our our friends and family, you're able to see how quickly that can expose so many people to that opportunity. And like you said, I'm, I'm on board and I, I want to make this opportunity going forward because I've worked really, really hard to get to where I am. And, you know, I've been given this opportunity in my eyes by my own community and the people that have supported me and shown me what I'm supposed to do or, or, you know, given me the opportunity to learn and make mistakes. And I'm totally a byproduct of my mentors, my friends, my family. And so making sure that we put ourselves in that situation where we're able to give people that opportunity or even just that path towards it is one thing. Cause that person, they might come from either, you know, Baltimore or Oakland and get into our wineries, but next harvest, if they're into it and it's for them, you know, they're going to be asking you, Hey, can you put me in touch with a guy from Hawks Bay? Or for me, I like, can you put them in touch with someone from Napa that you've worked with? And that's just the first step on their journey. And I think that that's kind of the thing that we're missing a lot of is we, we don't look outwards as small wineries because we're more worried about things like paying the bills and doing all that kind of stuff. When realistically, in my eyes, as important as paying the bills is giving someone the opportunity to get into that system. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And to be clear, Hawke's Bay, New Zealand was not my first stop.
0: Actually, the, where you
1: fit and, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you make space for people
0: to fit in. For sure. I couldn't agree with that more. So let's um y- you had mentioned that you're a byproduct of of your mentors and people who yeah. be- who believed in you and sort of <laughs> spoke um it, it sounds like they kind of empowered you um totally. to to go out and to you know pursue your passions, which is just like what a gift to have that. Um yeah. what get how about some shout outs? Um who are yeah. <laughs> like really like I mean, for you,
1: number one is, is Abe Scherner from the Scullion project. Um, Abe's been such an influential um, person in kind of the, uh, I guess the shaping of, of Matrice in a sense, because he gave us the first opportunity, like my best friend, Alex, uh, my business partner, when he was, um, you know, after Cyrus, he went to work at the French laundry for a, a stint and, you know, realized that he was like, all right, you know, I've kind of hit the pinnacle and realized that I'm, you know, this might not be what I'm, what I'm into right now. I want to try something different. And because of, you know, him just spending a lot of time in his local wine shop and doing tastings, he got in touch with a couple of different winemakers. And then eventually the owner of the wine shop got to know him so well that he put him in touch with Abe. And he was like, hey, like there was someone that, that conduit is so interesting. Like, our local wine shop, the owner of it actually put him in touch with someone saying like, this guy would really do well in your situation. And so what Abe built with the Scolium project was really simple. It was like, a, a it was kind of like a, an incubator for liberal arts degrees to get into the wine industry. <laughs> you know, like if you were an interesting or different or unique person, that's like what he wanted to do. But he attracted people like cooks and you know, tangible like people who work with their hands, that kind of a thing, or yeah. were into doing that. But also like the big thinkers and the big ponderers. And I, I find it to be the assistant winemaker at the Scolium Project. It was after just one harvest season, Alex's first harvest season. And he was like, you got this, you could do this. But what he didn't realize at the time was that it kind of came with like, three or four other friends that were very similar minded. So with Alex came, you know, myself, um, our really great friend, Danny Romo. Um, and then that kind of like built this like conduit for like more and more people to get in there. So, yeah, Abe was a really big influence. And then from there, if you know Abe Scherner, he's definitely an interesting person and has a great perspective on life and loves living it. And his network is just infinite. I mean, I, you know, we got to know Stegan Passalacqua really well. Um, Matthew Rourke was making the wines, uh, the Matthew Rorick wines, the the Foreland Hope wines at the facility at the time. So we got to know him really well. Steve Mathiason, he was buying fruit from. Lee Hudson, like, the let's just, John Kongscar. the list just goes on and on and on. And these are everyone from, like, the most esoteric of winemakers in Napa Valley and Sonoma County to, like, you know, millionaires and billionaires that were you know, and just happen to live in the same town. So he was an instrumental person. And then after that, like, I really think that Steve Mathiason, his winemaking style, as well as his mantra on life and how he interacts with his vineyards and his mentality of this kind of like idea of permaculture and organic viticulture, that really sent me over the edge. You know, that was like, okay, these two guys put together and then like, you know, Tegan's Lust for California history, all like check boxes that I just really loved, and so kind of putting myself in that world for several years like really kind of shaped the the cornerstones of Matri Dache, for sure. That's amazing. So yeah.
0: uh, like as as you were sharing that story, I wrote down a little call to action, which is to like be an Abe. Uh, which which is to provide opportunity for others. And I think it's so cool that you mentioned that, like, you know, he, like, intentionally or uh, I guess initially, but then uh, eventually it just sort of took on a life of its own, which was to provide opportunity for, you know, progressive thinkers, artists, those who like to work with your hands. And I think it would be really cool, you know, uh, today it's, it's sort of more relevant than ever. It's also to just, even be intentional about making sure that, um, you know, we provide those opportunities for people who don't look like us as well. Right. Um, and just to make sure. And, and I think that in that there's like some beautiful symbiosis that can be born in, in, um, you know, crafting wines that bring people pleasure with people who are, who are passionate and free thinking and, and creative. That's, that sounds pretty cool. So be an Abe. That's, that's my, uh, that's my take. <laughs> nice. I like
1: it. I'm yeah. sure he would.
0: Uh, cool. So, um, what, so I I guess it, it, it sounds like from there you had, um, some relationships with people who you were taking inspiration from, you knew who you were emulating. And, um, you know, so, so at that point, uh, I, from there, I guess you and Alex, How did, how did, how did Maitre Deshaies come? I I would like to like hear the story, but also I think, you know, going back to this idea of that person listening, trying to figure out how this, you know, is applicable for them, if, if at all, I want to make sure that in this conversation and in conversations like these, we're intentional to hit on, um, you know, points that maybe people don't talk about all the time. Maybe, maybe it's even like, you know, inappropriate sometimes to talk about, which is like, how did you actually get something off of the ground like how how, how did you fund it uh, like, I mean, it's an expensive world and i think that's an important thing that you know just like going out and getting a harvest is something you know the totally. idea of funding a, win- a winery is scary but i know and i imagine you know there are ways to go about it that are more and less expensive than others so i right. think i think that's an important thing to discuss
1: no, I, I think you know, you and I both have the academia behind us. You know, we realize that when we see something, we read between the lines. You know, like some people might see a lot of like physical labor on the crush pad and things moving around, forklifts, that kind of a thing. And they might think, oh man, I need to learn how to drive a forklift or have to figure out how to operate this machinery. And at this you know at a certain point in time you realize that there is like a tactile thing to making wine for sure if i were to look back and think about winemaking and what i could pass on to someone is that logistics are almost 90 percent of winemaking and actually physically making the wine is probably like one of the smaller single digit percentages and people kind of put that up to itself so kind of like demystifying everything. Yeah. Like a big part of winemaking for me that I learned very quickly was managing a business and understanding that the inputs that you put into that might not give you substantially what you want initially, but it's all about setting up those systems to work for you as opposed to against you so that you can take advantage of the great opportunity you have to, to learn how to farm or learn how to make wine or taste wine or enjoy it. Um, that's one thing that a lot of people, especially in on small businesses, they don't get to enjoy wine because they're so focused on trying to get it done. And so I guess long story short is that realistically for me, I, looking back on starting a winery, I, I would have liked to have learned a little bit more of the nitty-gritty when it came to the paperwork, licensing, compliance, state compliance, distribution. You know, it, it's a tough pill just to swallow. The hairs on the back of my neck stand up. By <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, man. Compliance and licensing. Oh, so like, if you really think about it, you don't learn that stuff until you get to that point. And I know you've been in the same situation as I have. You you read the document that's been sent to you by the state to really realize like what you need to do to make sure that you can sell the wine. I would say that one of the biggest hurdles to getting in the wine industry is understanding how to sell it and how legally you can do that because it's not a- And where sort of the law is
0: rigid right. and where it is, you know, uh, flexible. Right. Yeah, because, because there's both. There are certainly opportunity, you know, there's times when you when you read it and you're like, wow, that's really daunting and scary. And then someone explains to you after you've done some digging, don't worry about that. It's easy peasy. And then other times exactly. you read something and you're like, that's not so bad. And someone's like, you better file that report or you're in really big trouble. And it's like exactly. you know, being able to work through all of that is, uh, you know, I, I agree. Paperwork compliance right. is is a killer.
1: And it, it takes experience to learn that. And, it, and truly, like, you can't really learn it until you do it. One of my first things for harvest and really understanding a wine industry job is getting the physicality, knowing it, like working as a cook, it's really simple. You want to learn how to fry an egg on a breakfast line, or if you want to learn how to sear a steak perfectly, all you have to do is watch and learn. It's the same way with all of that stuff, with, with you know, the the you know, mundane things as they are as paperwork. I wish that I was put in that situation and dealing with it with other businesses before I did it with mine, because I would have saved a lot more time, energy, and money. And really there isn't a way that people can convey that to you until you actually have to do it. And so it's tough. And I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I, I, I just wish that that was one thing that was, you know, And maybe it's a rite of passage or whatever that BS means, but you know, people are like, Oh, you're gonna start a winery, like, think about it when you guys start. They're like, Oh, that's that's great, you know, you talk, that's adorable, yeah, that's cute, yeah, that's cute. All right, (laughs) we'll see how you do, right? And so, I hope that that changes because I really think that the barrier to entry for most wine businesses isn't so much making, you know, making wine. It's actually selling it and understanding how to set up their business structure. And so that's tough because, you know, you're kind of doing it as you go. You fly by the seat of your pants if you're making wine like we do. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I get that.
0: So, I mean, I, I almost think that like a similar answer there, not to put words in your mouth, but no, um, not at all that like, you know, seeking, seeking mentorship, like having that person who's been there, that you can call and you know I have those people in my life too and I don't want to go down you know and talk about all of that right now but just like having people who are you know kindred spirits maybe not even in wine specifically you know whether it's just someone you know who runs a business that you look up to somewhere else right. almost identifying those people and building relationships such that, or the courage, <laughs> that you can call that person and say, hey, how are you? How, how are things going? Listen, I don't mean to bother you with this. I know you're busy, but like, hey, you know, like uh, my work rinse comp is getting audited right now. And like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> That's a true story. Oh,
1: man, I know how you feel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like, I don't know what this means. I paid my bills and like, I give you all of my documents and somehow this is, you know, taking up all of my time and I'm not sure how to navigate this but having that person that you can call and you know that they're not going to drop what they're doing and come take care of it for you but even if they can just give you 5 minutes of their time to be like hey here's my experience with that like how invaluable is that sort of feedback
1: right exactly it's it's incredible and being able to have people like that or being a person and being willing to do that i think is what really kind of seals the deal is if you've done it before and you know how difficult it is you know that someone's going to cross that bridge again behind you so might as well either like put up the sign, you know, say, hey, like I'm here for you, that kind of a thing. And I, I've definitely been that person to a couple of different people. And I always make myself available for those situations. And I, I know that I need to do more of it. And I need to do it in a way that can be a little bit more accessible.
0: Yeah, so- me too. I agree. You know, time is like, the, you know, I, I think about sort of like the, 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 the things that, we all have that humans have to offer the world are really time talent and resources. Right. And they're not divided evenly. Um, but like how, you know, we are really held accountable for how we spend our own. Right. And so, I mean, I feel like that's something that I've been grappling with a lot and like, um, you know, and yeah, I'm, I'm busy. You're busy. We all are for sure. But just leaving enough room, uh, leaving enough excess capacity in our lives, um, you know, and maybe that means not picking up that one extra state where, you know, the compliance is going to be a bear, but you can sell a little bit of wine, but like, you know, maybe it does mean leaving that on the table. So that way we can leave some capacity to, you know, provide mentorship to somebody else who needs it, you know, to get, to get distribution in their first state, you know, which would be so meaningful and what an opportunity to be an aid for that person, you know? Totally.
1: I'm with you. I look towards, you know, opportunities in different places by really by grassroots you know like I I like to think like every movement is built on the grassroots efforts of the people involved and especially when it comes to you know low intervention wine um, you know people who want to showcase farming not just wineries but you know vegetables tree fruits everything like our, our opportunity to do that is so minimal and the best place to do that is your own community. Everyone has a farm that's within, you know, just like my grandma when I was a kid, she had a, a garden in her backyard. When she couldn't grow, she would rely on her community. You know, she had her neighbors or she had her farmer's market that she would work at. And and that was an interesting opportunity to see how like even a small community can work that way. And they're all over the world. They're all over wine growing regions, non-growing, non-traditional wine growing regions. Like you'd be surprised the kind of things that you could find if you if you put yourself out there and you're you're actually like willing to interact.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, just um, in in, uh, I guess, April, like. After this this whole lockdown was real and tangible, but still early on, uh, right. I, I I sent an email out to um, the farm organization here in uh, in Montgomery County where the Burnt Hill project is, right next to Howard County, and yeah. uh, just kind of like put it out there, like, hey, if you're interested in farming or growing or producing a value-added you know, uh, agricultural product, reach out to me, because I'm not looking for any compensation or money or anything here, but I would love to build a network. And, you know, our farm is 117 acres and we have 40 acres of woods. And like, I just see so much opportunity beyond, you know, the 15 acres of grapes that we have planted, which hopefully someday is maybe 30 or 40, but, you know, out in the open field, like I see opportunity to grow, you know, heirloom grains and in the woods, mushroom farming. And Ooh. I would love to, but but I also recognize my own time limitations, right? Like I mentioned, like, I'm not a blue blood either. So like at the end of the day, like we have to sell wine and like get stuff done, you know, to like right. pay people. Um, but like, I think a really cool way to see progression and provide opportunity is through growth. And if you can provide opportunity in such a way that it offers meaningful, you know, employment for someone in exchange for life skill and, and growth of, of a farm, you know, organism, like what a cool symbiosis that is. So like, I think that, I I think that's like a long-term, you know, I didn't start this conversation thinking this, but like, it's really kind of come to me as we've talked this through that, like that is like a meaningful way that, you know, frankly, someone that's really busy with running a business can provide meaningfully for their community.
1: It's, it's interesting, like, a lot of people look at it like a church as community, or they look at like a, a city as community, but kind of like the original um, idea of it was that if you know, you had a single family on a plot of land that, that grew something a crop, number one was providing for everyone on that property. And that's pretty cool to think about. And like you were saying, you know, when you get to a point where you need the help, you stretch those resources. And in a very modern society, I think we have a lot of those resources available to us. We just got to put ourselves out there. So that's rad, man. I'm really happy that you did that. And I know that there's organizations out here, like one of them that we particularly like to support in the Bay Area is Quesa. Um, You know, understanding it's an organization that based itself off of the farmers markets and available farms, but also teaching kids that the opportunity to farm is there and the opportunity to be a part of that cycle is there. And as chefs, we really resonate with the idea of fresh farm produce from a local continuate. So for me, I love the idea that no matter where you are in this country, you can go to a place that's close by that has local produce. And what what, what better way of uh, helping people understand that is to do that in a local sense. So I'm really happy you guys are doing. Yeah,
0: it's this. true. I mean, it's it's almost like the idea of like you know, like teaching your community not only how to eat or maybe how to grow food, but how to source food um, nice. so that they can nourish themselves and feed that local economy. It's it's just like such an important cycle and. Mm-hmm. You know, as intuitive as it is, once you understand that cycle and you've participated in it and you've grown a crop and you've made a product and you've sold it and you've employed a person and you see how that works, you know, it's not necessarily intuitive until you've really walked it all the way through. And it's it's impossible for, you know, for... Uh, folks who have walked it all the way through to expect others to sort of see the world through the same lens that they do. So I think we kind of have to have, you know, patience and empathy and just like a will and, and have a willingness to, um, uh, you know, to, prov- to provide those opportunities for people who have not yet experienced that cycle.
1: Right. Hey, so when it comes down to it, like I know the, the Burn Hill Project's brand new. I guess, like, for me, like, I, one of my big mentors, like, Steve and Abe, who was a mentor for you? Because, like, what what blew me away when I first started learning about your project and your family and what you guys have been doing, very much from a distance out here in California, was, like, how did you guys even get there? You know, like, who was the mentor for you guys to get, you know, these things going? Because I, I remember there being, like, Virginia vineyards, there was Mount Airy vineyards, there was one or two different places in Delaware that you could go to. But ever since I left Maryland, which was like 2003, the whole industry has changed so much. So I'm really interested to hear who like kind of has been that person for you in Maryland.
0: Wow. Uh, So similarly, I have many, um, but to like uh, zoom out a little bit further uh, than just wine specifically, um, I, you know, I, the person who, um, I looked up to a lot in my life was, was my grandfather, um, who, uh, he, he passed away four years ago. Um, but old Westminster winery would literally not exist if it weren't for him. Uh, right. because, you know, just like talking about, uh, uh, before I kind of like get into our relationship, talking about funding capital, like he made it happen. My, um, just, well, I guess to answer the question I asked you at the beginning is like, what is your story and where do you get started? Um, we, uh, old Westminster winery started on my parents' farm in Westminster, Maryland. My dad's a carpenter. My mom's a nurse. They both still work in those occupations. Um, my mom's dad, my pops, uh, was, uh, he was a retired military guy and then worked for the state department And then like literally played in the stock market and was just like a serial entrepreneur and frankly did like well for himself, like later in life, just as an, as like a really insightful person. Um, however, he was also like very, um, generous and progressive and, um, like he did well for himself, but, um, he basically gave uh of himself very freely um to the fact that like he always had time for me and my 40 other cousins um you know my mom's one of nine so it's like a crazy family like this guy oh my gosh it's insane that's amazing yeah and uh so like i remember when i first pitched him the idea of old westminster winery like he was our first investor uh And like, we ultimately, uh, he refused to let us pay back uh, the, you know, his uh, initial investment is really what happened. But Old Westminster Winery was really born uh, not of like a passion for food and wine, um, um, but but really more, it was more practical than that. My parents were actually trying to sell the land that is Old Westminster Winery in 2008 uh, in 2009, as you know, that was a bad time to try and sell things. And, uh, so fortunately they were unsuccessful. And, uh, so I remember like Christmas 2009, I was home from college. I didn't graduate until 2010. So I'm two years younger than you. Um, and, uh, we had one of the, like, I remember my dad saying like, all right, what are are we going to (laughs) do kind of conversations. And, um, from that, like, yeah, from that we had like this, uh, ridiculous idea, uh, born that we were going to like try and put the land to work, uh, which I think was my mom's idea. Like, let's put the land to work. And so we started kicking the tires on ways to do that. And, uh, planting, planting a vineyard and starting a winery, uh, as crazy as that sound seemed like it was, it was, it was a cool idea. It was something that I got behind immediately. I was like, yeah, let's do it. My mom was read there
1: any other crops like, were you like, maybe we should do like a pick your own strawberry patch? Or was <laughs> no, we sure. it just like,
0: well, like, actually, my mom read an article in the Washington Post. I think this guy, Dave McIntyre, wrote it, who's uh, still a, a, a friend um, way back in the day before I even knew him. And I think it something about the article, the, the article was something to the effect of how globally wine is going local, right? So, like, whether you're mm-hmm. like, in Michigan or Arizona or Virginia or Pennsylvania, like wine is being grown in places that you historically would have never imagined. And so, like from that, it was like, oh my gosh, like we could do this too. Let's let's be a part of this like movement, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, like. My sister Lisa was going to school for chemistry. Um, she thought that she was going to go into medicine. The idea of making wine, I think, sounded better than med school at the time. So we, you know, we kind of had one of those "if you're in, I'm in" moments. And uh, my sister Ashley, I think she was probably only 18 at the time, and uh, but now she carries us. Um, we just started looking around and it's like, who is making wine around here and doing it well and doing it right and, and creating products that we can believe in? And, um, you know, there, there's a couple immediately come to mind. Um, there's a winery right down the road called Black Ankle in Mount Airy uh, in Northern Virginia. There's uh, Jim Law at Linden um there's barbersville down in central virginia there's Glen manor out in front royal so we just kind of identified just started doing our homework and like figuring out who we wanted to emulate and um we started working with uh you know and then the last thing the piece that was missing for us once we kind of identified case studies or or other wineries who were doing something that that we would want to be or to do or to associate ourselves with was to recognize that we have no heritage in winemaking, right? Like Lisa's a chemist, but she's also 21 years old. And uh, you know, our grandfather is not a winemaker. So it's like, how do we learn? And uh, so we were fortunate enough to, uh, to, to be introduced to um, this, this guy named Lucien Guimon, who's from uh, Chateau Boyd Cantenac in Margot. He's a consultant. Well, he's a winemaker at Chateau uh, uh, Boyd Cantenac but he also does consulting in all of his free time and right. uh, I think he takes particular interest in what's going on on the east coast because to his mind it's the wild west right like there's right. no rules there's just infinite possibility there's lack of organization and i think coming from a place like you know the left bank of bordeaux he is just captivated by you know the freedom within within which we play um, so he loves it. We were introduced to him and, um, you know, I would consider him, uh, and I'm certain my sister Lisa, our winemaker, would as well, um, you know, uh, the the ultimate sort of like mentor that we've had um, with everything related to, uh, you know, production, actually like fermenting grapes, like demystifying that box
1: where grapes turn into wine. This is what's happening right now. My dog's oh. jumping up on me. <laughs> what's your dog saying? his name's Ernesto he he's my my best friend over here <laughs> uh, well well no that's that's always something I've wanted to understand because for me like growing up in Maryland and knowing that you know there was that mentality out there it almost felt like to me like it was almost impossible you know I always thought like you were saying like first generation in winemaking we had no idea I always thought that like winemaking was like multi-generational you had to own the land plant the grapes tend to them know how to do all that kind of stuff and so what's been cool is is seeing your project kind of grow and and be what it is and know that I came from that place and know that you know it's possible to do that because ultimately like we'd love to do the same thing like we were talking about earlier it's it's quite different now and You know, you'll go to like a a trade show or or like a a tasting and someone will say, oh, do you own your own vineyards? And we're like, well, it's kind of a slippery slope. You know, the land is quite expensive here. And, you know, in order to do that, you have to have multi, you know, millions of dollars to plan, permit, do all the things that you want to do. And so we're searching for places down the road. So I guess kind of my question for you and one that I'll talk about a little bit with maitre Duche is kind of like what's next. And it's an interesting thing. Like we've always realized that if we wanted to do what we were talking about before is make space for people, give people the opportunity. And most importantly is pay people fairly in our industry. I I can't tell you how hard it's been coming up in the restaurant industry and working jobs for free, literally for free. And then other times more or less for free, given how much little we were paid but making space for people and paying them fairly is something I'm really passionate about. And, you know, building your business to a point where you're able to scale because you want to be able to provide that kind of experience to your employees, really important to me as well. And so I guess for me, like our ultimate goals and what we kind of see ourselves doing in the future is planting vines and, and being the stewards of the land that we really, you know, you know, we work with great people and great growers that are stewards of land that you know, have, you know, 40, 50, 100 year old vineyards and they're just doing the right things at all the right times. So we have nothing but perfect, you know, incredible mentors and our growers to look look towards for inspiration and guidance in that right direction. And our entire brand, Maitre Duche, is built off of those single vineyard, you know, plots that are 40, 50, 100 years old. And so we think to ourselves, like, okay, what's the next step for us? And intuitively, it's planting grapes and then being that, that kind of a grower to someone down the line, whether it's ourselves or our own production or, or whatever. So for us, you know, we're on the look for, for land in other places, whether it be California or, or farther north in Oregon or Washington, where it's more accessible for someone like myself to purchase land, plant grapes, and set kind of that you know, that, that tone for what we want to do for the future. And so I guess kind of what's my, my question for you is what's, what's the big next step for, for you guys? Like, is it farming? Is it, is it the business side? Is it, you know, like how do you, like, I've had a lot of time to think about this in the past few months and it's been something that I really think is like showing me, like we're opening this tasting room in Berkeley so that we can, you know, make a little bit more money so we can broaden our, our perspective on hiring people, giving people an opportunity to get into our space and, and doing in um, our industry for that matter. But what, what about you guys? Like what's, yeah. what's the future look like for Old Westminster? Western
0: history? Cool. I'll answer that. But first I want to just chime in quickly. You said something that just like, I, I, I have something that I'd like to add <laughs> uh, no. which is That's that cool. uh-huh. you, you said that you're, that you're getting ready to open a tasting room, which is amazing. And yeah. that like, the hope for that is that it will um, increase revenue and provide opportunity for more gainful employment for, for your team, for people in your sure. community, um, which I love that. An idea that that we recently implemented that has just been really transformative for us, which is that so um, we opened our tasting room on our farm in 2016, right? So like, I mean, we started at Westminster in 2000. 11, we planted our grapes in 2011. We opened our tasting room in 2016. Um, And when we first opened our tasting room, we did not accept tips. I remember like, and I don't know if it was like, you know, my dad is a carpenter. We're, I mean, we're like very blue collar roots, honestly. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's just like something about like accepting tips, just like, I I think it was ingrained in us that like, you just don't do that. Right. And like, which is, which now I just look back and I'm like, I laugh at myself for having that mentality because there's just like, there's no reason to have pride in not accepting, you know, a tip for a service provided. It just made, it made no sense. But our tasting room for the first two years did not, we didn't accept tips. Sure. And it was like, this is, we provide wine, and this is the service people pay for. We paid everyone on our team uh, 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 generously, uh, but but we didn't accept tips. And we've really come full circle on this. And and just and then we started accepting tips, which was great for everyone that worked in the tasting room. It was a big pay raise. Um, right. But recently, we implemented a service charge, which is a 10% service charge, to right. um to actually reduce pressure on tips and really to just recognize the service that's being provided, especially in a, in a post-COVID world, um, you know that our staff are coming in and working on a Saturday afternoon and providing a service to people outside during a pandemic. And right. so we've put a 10% surcharge on all of our uh, service at the tasting room. And um, it's been really well received, um, all of our, our customers. And also for our staff, it's been a tremendous boon in their pay. And um, so that's just an idea and something to consider. And I know that that's not revolutionary and that there are chefs and restaurants that function on that model of, of, of sort of service charges. And we pay all of our employees $25 an hour or whatever it may be. Um, but like, I, I think that that's something that we implemented that is worth considering as you open a tasting room totally. Uh,
1: no, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I, I love the idea of service included. That's definitely something I'm big on when it comes to restaurants. Um, you know, I, I've worked in in a restaurant where we've had tip pools. We've had different ways of thinking about how we distribute that and, and what's fair and what's not. And I, I find, you know, in the hindsight of every restaurant I've worked in spreading tips around to all of the people in, in the space is the best thing because we all collectively work together towards a common goal, which is, you know, hospitality at, at its highest degree, but also making sure that everyone feels included and it's tough because you start, you know, you start getting on a slippery slope when you don't include people in to the, the, the equation when it comes to a tip pool. And I was one of those people, you know, like in the back of the house, it kind of sucks when you're like watching, you know, a person make, you know, twice, three times as much as you, and you're working just as hard as they are. So I'm happy that you do that. And the 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 way that I think it works is is find something that works for your community. If you're you know a tasting room in in you know in, in Clarksburg, Maryland, like that's that's one thing. But if you're in downtown Baltimore, that's another thing. So find out what works, whether it's a service charge or or tip pool or service included or you know, there's so many restaurants that are, are doing really interesting things. And I, I find that like, you have to just listen to, to what, you know, the people are telling you to do. And obviously you were too, because you're listening to your employees. And, and of course, the people who are there who were saying, I want to leave money on the table for the people who gave me such a great experience. So I like it. And I think kind of going forward, you're just going to have to assess, you know, where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. That's kind of your future. Like, being able to provide for the people that are willing to not just support your business and the people who work there, but making it a big part of your business to make sure that those people feel like they're provided for, but also have the means to, to make more if they want to.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, to, I guess the second part of your question is like, what's next for, you know, for old Westminster for the Burnham? Yeah, What's yeah. next? Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it, it's actually mostly, um, not outside of but adjacent to wine and what i am becoming um increasingly passionate about is is like really um fostering a healthy farm organism at Burnt hill and i kind of like teased at that with the idea of bringing in the community to grow mushrooms in the woods and you know heirloom greens in the fields but that's really what i want to do and ultimately what i envision at Burnt hill um we'll see maybe as soon as next year um, is is developing um, you know a, a farm market, an off-grid farm market. So what I want to do is um, by off-grid, I mean like I, I think it would be really cool to harness like the natural resources that this farm has up on top of the hill, you have sun and wind, right? So like yeah. let's connect, let, let's collect that and turn it into energy. And then we can get like some old shipping containers and like upcycle them into like cool pop-up stands. And like, and like, you've been up on that hill, like, I think it would be really cool to build like a compound where there's like different stalls and different spaces. And like, we invite and like, not only do we like sell wine that we make, right? Like that would be, you know, an integral piece of like making the finances work for us, but like more broadly offering opportunity and building community with other farmers, right? Because like, we don't make all things. And I think that the type of consumer that would come from D.C. to the Burnt Hill Project on a Saturday afternoon in July would also be interested in meeting and tasting and supporting a local cheesemonger or a baker or, you know, yeah. some growing animals. So, like, I think it would be cool to almost like, well, hey, you grew up in Maryland, right? Did you ever drive to like Ocean City on the weekend? Oh, totally, and, yeah. like, you know, like, you remember, like those big farm stands where like everybody would oh, stop yeah. like corn and watermelon on the way? Like I think, uh, was, like
1: right after you cross the bridge on the 50 to get to OC, like every, like the greatest thing is the farm stands and the barbecue and the crab oils, like any place exactly you can there's
0: crab outside. oil, and barbecue, there's the ice cream stand. There's like, I think it would be cool to like take all of that. So like not a tasting room, right? Like not a big place that you can go inside a very much like open air. Yeah, like May through October only and like just an open air market. Like, I think that is
1: something that I would really love
0: to create. Um, And I think that's what
1: kind of every farmer's market is trying to create right now. It's not entirely farms and produce. It's small makers, people doing different things, providing a service or a product like I love it. And what's really cool about farmers markets or open air markets in general is that they bring those small people together and those small communities together. People you wouldn't readily know existed because you know you might not have the space or they might not have the means to know that you know that they're there. But you have this kind of common ground and this community based thing that you you know you know this market exists. So I just think that's pretty cool. I, I, you know, like working in restaurants, you see that you get to be able to do that. You know, one of the cool things about being in like a little bit of an older part of California is that there are those people who have tried to do those kind of things. There are these kind of like small towns that only exist because of like one or two things, whether it's like an open air market or, you know, I think of like Bodega Bay or, you know, Tamales, California and Crockett, California, like these really small towns that are kind of a bygone era, that the only reason they're there is because of that small community around them. That's pretty rad. So I, I hope that's the case because man, like being on top of that Hill and like looking out over the Appalachians and like seeing the Hills, like it is so cool. And then there's so much story behind that property. I'm just so excited to see it come to fruition. It's yeah. So cool.
0: Thanks man. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think thank those words of encouragement. Um, what, what about, what about for you?
1: So the when are, are coming, when are you coming
0: back east? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, my, my mother and father and my sister live in the in you know the DC metro area and Baltimore metro area. So they're in Howard County and in um, College Park. And so I'm there at least once a year, twice a year, depending on you know what's going on. Like I, I can't tell you like before uh, you know the lockdown for COVID, we were you know we had one of the busiest springs that we've ever had. You know we had Probably about four solid weeks of travel booked, ready to go from, you know, end of March all the way to middle of May. And so it's been an interesting thing, you know, trying to travel and do all that stuff. But, you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier was our tasting room in Berkeley. My business partner, Alex, who's actually lived in the East Bay and in Berkeley for the last seven years. He's been commuting to wine country so finally we got this opportunity to take over the space um, and we're really focusing on this tasting room. It's actually been kind of, kind of nice in a way for us to be able to have a singular focus as opposed to like doing sales, making sure we're doing, you know, compliance and getting everything done for all of our travel, actually traveling to the places running around the country to try and sell the wine. And so, it's really kind of grounded us in knowing, you know, what we want to do, how we want this space to work, what we want it to be. Um, and then not just that, like, where do we fit in? You know, like Jessica, my fiance and I are new to El Cerrito and we want to, f- you know, be a part of this, you know, this beautiful, like kind of growing community of, of wine in the Bay area. And we also want to make sure that, you know, we're, making it a place where we want to work for like eight, 10, 12 hours a day, four to seven days a week, depending on the week. And so that's actually been a really great experience. So kind of the future for us is the tasting room for the time being. Um, After that, you know, we've been growing a little bit over the years. And so we're kind of managing that growth, which has been great. And encouraging more people, you know, to be in our, our space. You know, Jessica, my fiance has taken on a bigger role in our company. And then Alex's fiance, Stephanie, you know, specifically in the last few months has been able to, do, you know, dedicate a little bit more time to our business. And then, you know, finding those people who we align with to, to share the space. I think that's going to be really fun going forward. So our doors are open and we're really excited to make it happen and and be a part of this community, of course, safely and 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 to to all of the health and CDC organization you know requirements. Um, but we're we're excited to welcome people to the space, albeit it's small and, and quirky and interesting. It's our home, so we're pretty stoked. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Luck to you. You know, down the line, I, I don't know. I I think de Duche just means seller master and you know it just depends on where the seller is i guess and so we have a really open perspective as to what the future looks like to us i think you've you've gotten this opportunity you know through the last few years to be able to really build on the property that you guys started with uh, at your parents farm but also realized, you know wow i've gotten this far and if i had the opportunity to do it you know, all over again, I'd do it this way. And for you right now, that's burnt Hill. And that's so amazing. And I think that's kind of what we're searching for. Like we're kind of searching for our own burnt Hill in a way. That's so awesome. we'll, we'll, we'll get there. It might not be, you know, this year or next, but I think that's kind of like off in the distance. Enjoy the, enjoy the journey, right? Like, I mean, yeah, like, totally. And like,
0: that's like something that I've been learning is that like, there's no like destination. There's no moments along the way it, it, that where you've made it. It's just like every day. And, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you have to find joy in, you know, even when it's rough, um, because like this, this, this is it, this is the ride. <laughs>
1: yeah. So um, when you and I talked about doing this and all this stuff, you, you, you gave me a question that was really good. And I'm actually really here at. Um, from, from your perspective first, because it's such a good story, especially with winemaking, because as you and I both know, you can plan everything to a T, but at a certain point, everything always goes wrong. <laughs> yeah,
0: so This is the brutal question, right? Dude, this is the brutal question. All right. so. Oh, yeah. So, hey, just just like let me give you the backdrop on this real quickly. <laughs> so, like, you know, like I mean, brutal is like a relevant term in the natural wine world right now. But, oh. like, it's been hijacked. So, like, I'm trying to, like, bring it back <laughs> because, like, to me, brutal is a word that, like, my sisters and I particularly always used growing up when something was so bad that it was funny. Like, when you would watch something, just somebody just crash and burn, you would just be like – Oh my gosh, that's brutal! And so, like, that's what I want to bring back. So, like, part of the show is like, I want, I want to hear a story from you that is so brutal, it's funny.
1: I definitely have one for sure. All right, and it's, I mean, like, maybe not everyone who's listening right now can relate to this in in a very specific way, but I'll kind of like poise it as, um, as something that you know might ring true with everybody, but. It, it's, you know, bottling is something that is inevitable in winemaking. No matter what, if you make the wine, you have to put it in bottle. You got to put a label on it. Sometimes you'll put a cork on it, a cap, a, you know, a hood and a cage and, and that kind of stuff. And it's one of those things where you think it'd be easy. Like, it's just really easy to do. You know, you just got to order the stuff, make sure it's there on the same day. And then nothing will go wrong. And for me and for my experience in bottling, and I'm sure for every winemaker that's listening to this, if they're listening to this is true, is that something always goes wrong on bottling day. And it's funny because it's not like you you do it every week unless you work for a really, really big winery. You're not bottling you know, more than once or twice a year. Um, you try and get things done and you try and get yourself set up as possible. You do your spreadsheets, you get your calculations down, you make the right orders, it's a lot of logistics, which remember is 90% of winemaking. And at the end of the day, it's just trying to make sure you have all your ducks in a row. And so you think you've always got it covered. You think you've always, you know, done everything, triple checked it, handed it to like your mom or your, your your fiance or your business partner and said, you know, like this is it. This we got it made. This is perfect, you know. And then something happens and it, it's like all of the things come together on this one day where you're supposed to get things in bottle and something always happens. So mine is a story about very recently, we got to the point where we had fail-safes, triple checks. Every single thing is in place, ready to go. Perfect. Day of the bottling. Like a lot of people in California, we hire someone who shows up with a bottling line that's usually on a truck or a trailer. They plug in there, plug to the wall, and they turn everything on. You got a couple people there, whether it's friends and family or whoever to help you out. You know, if you're making more than a couple hundred cases, you're usually doing it with a truck like this. So you get all these in a row, and as long as the bottling truck shows up, you're good to go, right? So you make, you know, everything perfect, ready to go. It's 6 a.m. It's not even light out yet. And you're just waiting on the truck to show up. And then recently one morning when we were getting ready for bottling, the truck didn't show up. And so you start thinking like, okay, like what's going on? You start calling the person and long story short, our bottling truck, which I will not name, is absolutely reliable 100% 99% of the time they will show up 15 minutes early this one time the one time that we had everything perfectly set up ready to go you know had the people there we all had coffee and donuts and croissants ready to go orange juice everyone's like ready to do bottling gloves earpieces everything and the truck Explodes on the way to dropping off the trailer. And it just started spiraling from there. So essentially, we get to this point where, we're like, okay, we'll bring the flatbed, we'll go out there, we'll link up the gooseneck, we'll bring the trailer here so that the truck can sit there and we can get everything going. Because the wines are ready to go. You can't say no when it's already on the tank, ready to go. You just have to hook it up. The glasses there, the labels there, the corks there, everything. So we drive out there, we try and get the bottling truck to link up to it. And our flatbed is one foot too long to hook up to the gooseneck so that it can't hit the actual flatbed, right? So now the truck is off of the trailer and we can't hook it back on. And by this time, it's like 11 o'clock in the morning, we're losing money on labor, like everyone's just cooling their heels, just like looking at Instagram. And so finally, you just pull the ripcord and you call one of your mentors and you say, what do I do? And of course, they know the number of the industrial tow truck company to pick up your trailer and your truck and (laughs) drive it to the winery. Put it into place so that you can actually bottle the wine today. So it was such a brutal experience. That was <laughs> the most funny. <laughs> and, I lo- and so you so said you think you have everything. How, and- how recent was this? Oh, man, this is in February.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> hey, so let that be a lesson for all of our listeners yeah. that things go sideways. It doesn't matter how many all years time. you do this.
1: Yeah. And there's no right or wrong answer. You can always prepare. You always hope for the best and plan for the worst. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> cool, dude. Well, thanks for sharing. It's been so fun to catch up with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: so, how, how can uh, how can our listen listeners sort of connect with you and uh, oh, right. potentially get their hands on on some uh, major deche wine?
1: So um, easiest thing to do is to go onto our website. If you want to buy wine, Um, it's mdc.wine, just MDC, Amazon, Michael, D's and David, Susan, Charlie, um, .wine. And we have a store online. We ship to almost every state in the country. Um, Still working on Alaska for all you folks up there who love MDC. Um, But more or less, uh, that's the easiest way to do it. If you're in major metropolitan cities like you know New York, California, like Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, Baltimore, DC, there's you know some shops and we're working on trying to get kind of like a stockist list to, to get set up so you can support local small independent retail shops and restaurants, which is about 90 to 95% of our distribution business. And then we're actually opening a tasting room in, in Berkeley, California on Fourth Street. So um, me and and Alex and our our significant others, our partners are opening this tasting room. Hopefully we'll have it open before harvest, which is kind of like July, August. Um, You'll be able to go onto our website, go to a visit page and book through uh, the talk platform, which is what we're setting up right now. And then obviously you can find us on Instagram, uh, mdcwine, at mdcwine, Uh, follow us on Instagram. Right now we've been literally, like we were talking about earlier, painting, my arm is so tired right now as I do that. Um, but we're, we're boots on the ground in the winery, getting everything ready for harvest. And so we're trying to be as, as, um, active with our customer base through Instagram, Facebook, and, you know, just by email easiest way to, to get in touch with us is go to our website, go to the contact page, send us an email. It'll get put right to my phone and, I'll, of course, email you within 24 hours. So if you have any questions, want to chat about food, wine, whatever, by all means do that. And you can always hit us up on Instagram.
0: That's yeah. amazing. Thanks, Marty. Good catching up. Dude, with thanks you. so much. Appreciate really appreciate it. yeah, the been time. Fun. And uh, yeah. for everybody listening, thank you uh, for for hanging out and listening to this uh, conversation. It's been uh, it's been fun for us for sure. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, and if you did enjoy this episode, uh, please consider subscribing via iTunes uh, or uh, Spotify, whatever your preferred uh, podcast app is. And um, yeah, that's it. We'll be releasing a new episode every week, every Monday. Thanks. Take care. Cheers.